every, every life has a story. I believe every, every story has a surprise. Every, every story is looking for an ending. And I believe y'all today that every story is a part of a larger story. Something happened to 2,000 years ago that an estimated 4.5 billion people like you and I celebrate around the world today. A few brokenhearted people went to a tomb. They were brokenhearted because they had seen this man crucified. They had seen him die and they went to a tomb and you know the story. Everybody knows the story at Easter. It makes it tough for the preacher, doesn't it? But the tomb was empty. Easter, the very first Easter, it didn't come that day to people that were well-dressed and happy for whom all of life was going very well. It came to people who were frightened and confused. They were alone. They were disturbed. They were, they were disappointed. What's remarkable to me about the story of Easter that we celebrate today is not just the empty tomb. It's not just where Jesus wasn't. It's where he was. It's where he chose to go. And it's where the story of Easter intersects with our story. You see, Jesus he went to Mary and he said, you don't have to be afraid. He went to Peter and said, you don't have to feel like a failure when you denied me and all the stuff that you've done wrong. You don't have to, you don't have to wear that guilt. He went to Thomas and said, you don't have to doubt anymore. You can really believe. He went to the disciples and he said, now you've got a reason for living. You've even got a reason for dying. The Easter story, I believe, intersects our story. What's your story? As a pastor, as a friend to a lot of you, I get a front row seat. I know a couple who's struggling with a very difficult diagnosis. I know a man, he lives far away, but his wife doesn't want the marriage anymore and he desperately doesn't want it to end. I know a man, I prayed for him this week, he's about to lose his mom in very difficult situations. I know a young lady who doesn't believe in God is not sure that life is worth going on and she's a cutter. I know this single mom who feels like it's her responsibility and she bears the weight of that. And on Friday night, thanks to some friends, I went to Blair E. Batson and stood at the bedside of a five-year-old boy with more tubes than I've ever seen in anybody. Today is his birthday, and if he makes it today, he'll start a sixth year of living. But they're probably sending him home to hospice care tomorrow. Bertrand Russell, the famous atheist, in his book, Why I'm Not a Christian, said that you cannot sit at the bedside of a dying child and believe in God. How can God be all-powerful, all-knowing, and yet do nothing. And I myself have acquiesced to that very line of thinking before. But as I left Blair Batson Friday night, I think, how can we not believe in God? The scripture tells us in Isaiah 48, the grass withers, the flower fades. That's your life, and that's my life. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has set eternity in our hearts. We have a restless mind. We have this curiosity that just cannot be abated. 
It's to capitulate to the ultimate form of despair to say that the Easter story couldn't happen. But to know that this restlessness that's within you and I, this longing for the afterlife, this other life, gives us this hope. Hebrews 11 says, faith is evidence of things not seen. It's assurance of things hoped for. This morning, I want to tell you that the Easter story intersects with our life, our lives, even at the deepest point of our pain. Whether you're merry and you're frightened, you used to be close to it all, but now no longer. If you're Peter and you've made a lot of mistakes, if you're Thomas and you, you struggle, I encourage you, if you're a Thomas today, to plunge deeply, go head first, as, as deep as that pool takes you. I want to share this morning about Easter, not just intersecting with our story, but the reality of it being a three-day story. And can I say, backing up, I'm, I'm looking at a couple of friends who've been at Fondren from the very beginning. And you'll remember that this is, this is actually our third Easter. The first Easter that we celebrated together as a church family, we came around Josh and Laura McAlpin. A lot of you know this story. And they have a, a healthy baby boy. He's 10, 11 years old right now. Caleb. Y'all know Caleb McAlpin? I call him positive, encouraging Caleb. But he's a healthy boy. But after, after Caleb was born, they had miscarriage and miscarriage. And Josh and Laura had the pain of actually driving to a hospital to give birth to a stillborn baby. They've known darkness. And when they, got, when they got the announcement that they were pregnant, it just didn't seem plausible. Medically, it was not. And I remember when we were at Dueling, we just came around them and we prayed, and there were so many prayers. Pray for Laura and the health of this child. And our first Easter as a Fondren Church family, Matthew, Isaac, McAlpin, was born as a healthy little buddy bounding down the hall right now. God is good. God meets us. He meets us in our deepest hour. Easter is a three-day story. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There's two verses we're going to look at today. If you're a Bible turner, hope that you are, or you, you want to plug in on your smartphone. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Somebody told me I need to give people time to look for the passage. So you guys got it for the Bible turners? I didn't say Bible thumpers. I just said Bible turners. Okay, there's a difference. First Corinthians chapter 15. For what I received, Paul says, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Circle that phrase. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now, Circle that again. That's an important phrase. You see, God often is a God of the three-day story. In Genesis, some of you are aware of the story of Joseph and his brothers and the prison and being in prison. But God rescued on the third day. In Joshua, the Israelites were told by Rahab the harlot that they should hide and seek cover. And God provided a safety net for them on the third day. 
Esther realized that her people were on the verge of being destroyed in a bloodbath. And she goes away to fast, to pray, to seek God on the matter. And the king grants her favor on the third day. There's a lot of third day stories in the scripture. Abraham, familiar to many of you, thinks he's called to sacrifice his son Isaac. And as he's going through this most disturbing dilemma, his eyes lift up and he sees a ram in the thicket. He, his son is rescued on the third day. In Hosea, the great prophet in the sixth chapter, the first two verses of the sixth chapter, it talks about how that we need to return to the Lord. And his people at that time were being torn into pieces, the scripture says. But it says that God showed them mercy on the third day. It's a third day story, this Easter story. Consider with me Friday. Some of you have heard it's gotten over 100,000 hits on Vimeo and YouTube. But maybe you've heard um, Derek talk about it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. That's been played at a lot of churches around here. Do you know Derek is a music leader at a Baptist church in Natchez? He lives here in Fonda. We're going to try to steal him. We're going to get Topher to steal him away and sign him to a long-term contract right here. It's Friday, but Sunday is coming. Friday, the background, you know, there is, of course, the central figure to it all. There's the Messiah, Jesus, born in Bethlehem, raised in a town called Nazareth in the region of Galilee. There's the Middle East. Imagine this, sports fans. There's turmoil in the Middle East due to political zealots and religious fervor. Can you imagine that? It happened back then. And that was the, the scene. And then there's, there's the Israelites who through their days, through their decades and centuries, had known oppression. They had known captivity. The Egyptians and the Persians and the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Greeks and now the Romans and the Israelites, they were ready for a savior. They were looking, though, for someone who was a conquering king who would come in a sword. And Jesus said, he came to bring peace. And in the middle of this story, these people longing for a Messiah, longing for a savior. There's a man named Pontius Pilate who had a horrible temper. This guy was a barbaric guy. He was known for his dreadful moods, his horrible swings, his violence, his aggression. He answered. He answered under Judas. And there, as he served in his reign, he was brought to this point to be a pawn on a chessboard. And Jesus teaches us in John chapter 10 that he willingly gave up. He laid down his life for us. When they said, who are you? And he uttered those words. Are you the king of the Jews? They asked him, and he said, what? He said, I am. Taking them back to the beginning. Taking them back to the earliest days. And this apparent blasphemy combined with his willingness. You see, Jesus 
could have conquered death. He could have shown his invincibility over death, but he chose the path of surrender. He chose to be submissive. On Friday, it's the dark day, the darkest day in human history. Remember this Messiah, after his life was lived on earth, your whole calendar is divided, B.C. before his life, A.D. after his life. But we, 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 we know something about Friday. Millions around the world have a solemn assembly on Friday to observe the darkness of the day. And praise God for Sunday. Sunday is the day. The amazing day where the stone was rolled away, where the tomb was empty, where death was defeated, where darkness was dethroned, where the devil was demotivated, where the soldiers were agitated, the disciples were animated. It was a great day. It was a day where the loftiest ideal won out, where the greatest man who has ever lived defeated the darkest enemy. And to this day, Pentecostals sing about it, Charismatics dance about it, Baptists occasionally say amen about it, Presbyterians study it, Episcopalians toast sherry to it, and the world has not gotten over it. Sunday, the day Jesus rose. But in this three-day story, what about Saturday? What about the day in between? Have you ever thought, have you ever wondered, have you ever pondered the question, why was there a Saturday? It did nothing, seemingly, to move the story forward. Why, why the silence? Saturday was a day for you and I to reckon with the reality of failure. Imagine the disciples and imagine their hopes. They were a stubborn group of people. They were a diverse groups socioeconomically and culturally and in their, their temperaments. And they were hard-hearted, stiff-necked, stubborn people who slowly began to warm up to what Jesus was really about. But imagine the weight, how they felt crushed under this weight of this failure. You see, because when Jesus was even on the cross, when he, when he went to the cross, he didn't quote the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He didn't say, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. He didn't even quote Psalm 27, one, the Lord is my light and my salvation. He quoted Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Saturday, allows you and I to reckon with the reality of what seems to be failure. And not just failure, silence. And not just silence, God's silence. Has he felt silent to you? Does he today? C.S. Lewis was a stud as a writer, as an intellect, as a Christian apologist. Uh, his life was lived out 
in England, but his impact, as, as you know, has been worldwide. C.S. Lewis was a confirmed lifelong bachelor. And at, at the age of 56, he wrote a book. It was really his memoirs of how he came to faith in Christ. The book was called Surprised by Joy. Some of you read it, heard about it. After the book was published and widely sold and distributed, he met a woman in her mid-50s. They met, they married. Anybody want to guess her name? Joy. His friends would say to him, you really were surprised by joy. British humor. I'm sure they said it in a Monty Python accent, right? <laughs> Tragically, that love, that marriage didn't last long. She was diagnosed with a terminal illness. and didn't, didn't make it herself to 57 years old. His next work was not entitled Surprised by Joy. It was entitled, A Grief Observed. And in this book, C.S. Lewis was the first person to really turn me on to the fact that I don't want to give my life to easy answers, to simple explanations, to bright and cheery optimism, to phony formulas, to forced belief, but to wrestle with things hard, hard things, in a deep way. C.S. Lewis, in his book, A Grief Observed, talks about the silence of God and what's happening when God is silent. I would put it to you, submit it to you on my recommended reading list, both of those, Surprised by Joy and A Grief Observed, if you want to more deeply consider the claims and the personhood, the teaching, the life and resurrection of Jesus. But that was Saturday. Friday, the darkest day. Sunday, of course, the brightest day, the day we celebrate. But Saturday was a day to reckon with failure, to reckon with silence, to, to wrestle and wonder, God, where are you? Easter is not about jolly, jolly, no melancholy. It's not a, an optimism that says the flowers will eventually sprout forth through the cracked sidewalk pavement. Easter at its core, Easter is Jesus. Easter is Jesus, and everything that Jesus taught and lived is true. Everything he taught and lived about life, about sin, about death, about the resurrection, about suffering, about God when he seems so glib and talkative and active in your life and mine and when we suffer and it just seems so painfully silent. In a book called The Problem of Evil, Cornelius Plantica gave a definition of sin. It goes like this. Sin is the culpable disturbance of shalom. Don't use that at lunch, okay? Sin is the, it's the culpable disturbance of shalom. Working our way back, if you were with us next door when we did the Sermon on the Mount series, we, we walked through that 
passage in Matthew chapter 5, and we got to the point, blessed are the peacemakers, we introduced this idea of shalom. It's a Hebrew word that means blessed, that means peace, that means health and wholeness. It's this idea that things are not as they should be. And disturbance, disturbance is anything from Wall Street corruption to greed, to avarice, to, to us seeking our own way, to the petty little things that cause us to devalue and de- de- disrespect each other. Culpable is a word that says guilt, ownership, responsibility. It's when we say, I've done my part. I've, I've done my part to not bring shalom, to to not bring peace to to this world, to my family, my workplace, my neighborhood, even in my own heart. I've, I've done my part and I own that. It's an honest, unvarnished reality. And in a society that tries to sweep this word sin under the rug, it's the very thing that we need to come to grips with today because we can't appreciate the Easter story without it. Sin is when we own it. But to be honest, a lot of sermons, a lot of services suck the life out of people because we tend to focus, very religious people tend to focus on sin. We we tend to bring more shame to people. A lot of times people don't want to come to church because church for them has been an experience where the guilt has been piled on and they leave with a sense of my identity is my sin. But let me tell you this morning, your your identity is not your sin. Your identity is in your Savior. The great theologian Meatloaf years ago saying, I would do anything for love. I would go to hell and back. But I won't do that. Now, I've always wondered, what is that? (laughs) Hey, Meatloaf, what's that thing you won't do for love? Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do you want to know what the New Testament teaches about sin? It says there's only one kind of sin, the kind that God has forgiven in Christ. Would you pray with me? God, we live today and it's a beautiful day. It's sunny and it's 70 and we're dressed up and we look good and we feel good about the day. But we we live in a world where every day is not Easter, where we're pulled into a, a lack of shalom, a lack of health and healing and wholeness, a lack of peace and blessing in our world. From from the corruption and the greed that's in the world to to the sin, the pettiness that's in our own heart. The prophet Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitfully wicked above all else. Who can understand it? And today, as we learn more neurologically and psychologically, we're we're overwhelmed with our heart and our mind and how, how intricate it's been created. And while we gain a great scientific understanding of our beliefs and our behavior and our actions. Lord, there's just so much about us that that we don't understand. 
And Lord, this third day story confronts us today, this Friday, this dark day of death. This, this Saturday, this day when we're confronted with failure, with the seeming silence of God. And on Sunday, the great resurrection. Paul would go on to say, God, in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ was not risen from the dead, then he's to be pitied among all men that his preaching is in vain. And Lord, we stand today, Lord, with the assurance of this beautiful, true story and its intersection with our own lives. God, I pray that you would convict our hearts of where we stand in our culpability in our own disturbance of shalom. And Lord, you tell us, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Lord, you've created us all with human dignity, but we've entered into human depravity and we need a savior. We're not built to to bear the weight of guilt and shame. We need the cross. And the cross makes sense because of the empty tomb. Lord, I pray that we would worship you now. Receive our praise as we sing to you, as we, for these moments, make this place a place of prayer. In you we pray. In Jesus we pray this Easter Sunday. Amen.